0: Well, good evening. It is uh, a joy to be here with you tonight and to be able to explore more about the sanctuary. Uh, We were really excited when we were able to contract with Messiah's Mansion to bring their full-scale model here to Dalton, and um, we got even more excited when someone had the idea of doing a vacation Bible school at the same time and uh, making it sanctuary-themed um, and so that's something I think is really special for the kids and also for the adults. It's been a little confusing, so, um, so if, you're, if, you, if you had some things not quite right the way you were doing it, it's understandable because we've got these meetings, we've got the kids' meetings, and we've got the tours, and they're, they're all sort of together, but they're all a little different. And so um, we would, uh, we're just glad that we can, we can have all of this going on this week, very busy week for all of us, and we're glad that you joined us. Now, um, there's one thing that I'm sort of assuming during our discussions here this week. Uh, I'm going to assume that you have or will be taking the time to go through the 75-minute tour of the sanctuary over here. I'm not going to be repeating everything that they discuss. We're going to be trying to go into a little more detail and to some of the themes that the sanctuary uh, uncovers in, in the Bible and its teaching for us today, so... Uh, that's something that I just want to make sure that um, you all are aware of. Um, this doesn't replace the sanctuary tour. It's meant to be sort of a um, a complementary, um, more in depth, at least in some areas, study of the sanctuary, as as you have the opportunity to go through that over there. Now tonight we also have a little bit of a, a little handout that Brent's going to share with you. And um, this is just something you can follow along as we go through the study. It's going to be a little bit of an overview tonight of why the sanctuary anyway, if you want to call that um, the overview. The Truth About Angels and Offerings, I've titled it, and we're going to be studying some basic overview themes from, uh, from the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, about how the sanctuary came into being and why it's important for us and what it means for us today and um, tomorrow night our topic is blood bronze and blessings and uh, we're going to be looking more specifically at what took place in the, the the first of the ceremonies in the in the courtyard at the altar of sacrifice and what that pointed forward to so we're going to be sort of following our way through the sanctuary as we go this week um, but tonight, I'm I'm just glad that we can begin, and um, we can begin with with uh, an overview, you might say, of of the sanctuary. So as we're going along, if if you realize that I've moved too quickly and you missed some of the things you were trying to fill out, please just raise your hand. This isn't a there's not so many of us here that we can't make this interactive, right? And um, we can just go back and and uh, and and I can restate, or we can look at the verses again, whatever it is, so that we can get all of this filled out. If you'd like to, let's start with Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8. And I hope you brought your Bibles today, because we're going to be spending a lot of time in the Bible. This is this is a Bible topic. Um, I'm not I'm not an orator tonight. I'm studying the Bible with you. We're studying it together. And so, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Exodus chapter 25. And this is sort of the classic verse that Moses up in the mount hears from God. He says in verse 8, "...let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them." And um, this is one of my favorite verses because of what it tells me about God. It tells me that there's a God in heaven who wants to be close to His people. And that just thrills my soul. In fact, um, this is one of the things this last weekend that I preached about um, from Exodus 25 and verse 8. God wants to be near to His people, and that's just an amazing truth. But as we continue on, we notice that there were certain instructions, very specific instructions given regarding God's dwelling among the, His people. And he starts off, very interestingly, you might think he would start off with describing the, the courtyard, you know, and the, sort of like we would think of building a house. When we build a house, we start with the foundation, and then we you know, we do the framing, and we do the exterior walls, and we get this roof on, the windows and doors, and then we call it dried-in then, right? And then we start doing the, the details. We don't start with the furniture. But when God gives instructions to Moses to build the sanctuary, He starts with the furniture, not just any furniture. He starts with what we would consider the last piece of furniture, All the way into the very deepest recesses of the sanctuary was the most holy place with the Ark of the Covenant. And that's what Moses first has described to him. Very interesting here when we read in Exodus 25 we continue on verse 9 verse 9 According to all that I show you after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof even so shall you make it. Now this has to remind us of a New Testament passage in Hebrews chapter 8. So we're going to stop right now in Genesis or Exodus chapter 25. Keep your finger there. And flip over to near the end of the Bible, near the end of the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, and we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 8, and notice how Paul, or who I believe wrote the book of Hebrews, describes what um, happened in this, with this building of the earthly sanctuary. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1, okay? Can we flip over there? Hebrews 8 and verse 1, it says, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum we have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister of the sanctuary now when paul would write that to who was he writing this book to after all that's how we get the name of the book as it was written the letter to his own people he was written to the jewish nation trying to explain to them how christ was the fulfillment of all those ceremonies and and uh, symbols and patterns that they had in the sanctuary. A minister of the sanctuary. So when he said the sanctuary, they knew what he was talking about. And of the true tabernacle, he makes this this uh, this uh, distinguishing word there—the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. So he's saying there's a sanctuary. It's not the one that Moses built. It's certainly not the one that Messiah's mansion built. This is one built by divine hands, and it's not on earth, it's in heaven. And he goes on, and he he says in verse 5, "...who serve under the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle." And then he quotes Exodus 25 and verse 9. "...for see, says he, that you make all things according to the pattern shown you in the mount." And so, if we look back in, Revela- in I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 25, we continue on this story here. We, we understand now from the New Testament's explanation that this sanctuary which Moses was to build was a, was a sanctuary to be patterned after a true sanctuary in heaven, right? We can see that. We can see that very clearly. And notice he says, you shall make, verse 10, they shall make an ark of shittim wood, Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof." It's amazing to me to see how God began His description of the building of the sanctuary. He begins it by explaining how He's to make the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant, um, we'll be studying that more towards the end of the week, but just if, if you're not aware of it, the Ark of the Covenant... In the most holy place of the earthly sanctuary was where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. The very presence of God was over the Ark of the Covenant. And it's as if God says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And he begins by telling Moses how to build the very place where he's going to dwell. Isn't that neat? He begins from the inside out. And it's such a wonderful illustration of us you know because in a sense we're to be sanctuaries god doesn't begin by reforming us from the outside in he begins by building us from the inside out isn't that isn't that true he changes our heart and the rest flows out of a changed heart we could change our outside we could change our externals but that doesn't change what's inside unless god makes that miraculous change first in us. And so there's so many fascinating things we could, we could just ponder as we look at these instructions God is giving to Moses. But notice with me, it continues on, and we're not going to read this all, but we'll read verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 18. And you shall make there, uh, two cherubims of gold. Of beaten work you shall make them in the two ends of the mercy seat and make one cherub on the one end and the other cherub on the other end even of the mercy seat you should make the cherubims on the two ends thereof so over the over this this box which God described the de- in detail was to be built by Moses the ark of the covenant there was to be a mercy seat and on either side of this mercy seat were these two angels or cherubs as the bible calls them and if we continue on it, it, he gives very st- Specific instructions about how to build these cherubs, or cherubim is plural. And the cherubims shall stretch forth their wings wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall shall the faces of the cherubims be, and you shall put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you, and there I will meet with you and commune with you from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony, in all things which I give you in commandment unto the children of Israel. So here, God's giving very specific instructions. Inside the ark was to be the, the testimony or the commandments that He was going to give him. And we know, we, we can read that later, how God gave him. Remember written, with the very finger of God on two tables of stone? The, the, the tables of His testimony, the, the commandments, and they were to be put in the ark. And you might think, well, that's a very a severe thing, you know, thou shalt, thou shalt. But above the commandments was the mercy seat, right? And that's where God dwelt. And so here you see this picture of God not just being about law, but about being about mercy, justice as well as mercy, a complete mingling of these two, which um, we see fully demonstrated on the cross of Christ. But what I want us to focus on for just a moment here are these angels, these two cherubs or cherubim. Um, They're found several places in the sanctuary. We find them here, these two angels on either end of the ark. But if we look in the next chapter, in Exodus chapter 26 and verse 1, we're going to find that angels are found elsewhere in the sanctuary also. Exodus chapter 26 and verse 1, it says... Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple of scar- and scarlet. With cherubims of cunning work, you shall make them. Now, if we look over here at the uh, Messiah's Mansion, we can't see the, the bottom uh, curtains that were perhaps used. And there's lots of different artist's renderings of how they might have looked. But the, uh, the, in Messiah's Mansion, they've used, they've used different colors... Um, it would be pretty hard to make tarps that were mingled together or woven together, right? So the colors are all there for representation. But what we do see for sure is that in the curtains around the tabernacle itself, there was to be cherubs also, right? There were to be angels in the very fabric. And it was to be with, with uh, cunning work, or in some, in, uh, in some ways we could understand that to be the same word that when it talks about hand-pounded work um, it's, the same, it's the same Hebrew word that's being used there, that cunning work. And so this, this is describing a, a, uh, a, probably an a, a interwoven gold thread that formed the cherubs that could be seen on the outside of the curtains uh, that made up the tabernacle. If we look a little further in the same chapter, in Exodus chapter 30, uh, 26 and verse 31, notice with me another place that we find angels or cherubs. Cherubim, and thou shalt make a veil of purple, of blue and purple and scarlet, and fine twined linen of cunning work. The same word there, cunning work, cunning work, that's that's used over and over. Um, with cherubims, it shall be made. Now you might ask the question: Why this focus on cherubim? Why is this? Why are angels being represented in the sanctuary? what would they remind us of? What would they be here to tell us about? And I want to look a little more um, clearly at what this, what this all means this evening. Um, we've looked at three places. We see cherubim, at least these three places in the sanctuary. We see them on the Ark of the Covenant right there next to the very throne of God or the very mercy seat of God on which he dwelt. We see them on the curtain of the tabernacle, and we see them on the veil, which would have separated the holy place from the most holy place. So very prominently featured in the tabernacle is uh, the cherubim that we've studied about. So what do we make of all these angels in the sanctuary? Um, Surely there's something that we are to learn from these symbols. And... um, there are two words that are used for angels in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew. One is cherub. We usually say cherub. I think that's... Is that the way you usually say that word when you read it in the, in the Bible, cherub? Um, that's the way I grew up uh, saying it. In actuality, if you were to learn Hebrew, um, they, would, they would teach you differently, that cherub is actually cherub. It's, it's, a, it's more of a hard K, um, maybe a little bit of a Mixed between a K and a CH because it's got that K in it, you know. But um, that's how you would say cherub in the, in the, uh, in the Hebrew. And um, in, in actuality, what happened here is that when the translators came across this word for some reason, and I believe God must have guided them in this decision, the, word, the words cherub and seraph were not translated but transliterated. And that means, instead of saying, well, cherub in Hebrew means angel, so we'll just say angel, they said, instead they said, we will try to Romanize the word, we'll try to use the English alphabet to simply write out how the word sounds in Hebrew. Does that make sense? And so the word cherub or cherub is literally a Hebrew word. there's, there's, there's a number of, of, of Bible words that, are, that, that the same thing is done with, um, besides names and places, of course. They try to do that with names and places. Um, you, you've heard of Elijah when he fled from King Ahab. He went to the brook Cherith, right? It's the same, same thing. A lot of places are, are transliterated rather than translating what the name might mean in the Hebrew, right? And so we have Jacob, um, which meant um, deceiver, right? But they didn't say deceiver, they transliterated the, the name, and so forth. So angels, or in the Old Testament, cherubs and seraphs, were not translated, but transliterated. They, they were put there so we could know what the original Hebrew word was. And if we look at what that word could mean, there's uh, a number of scholars that have, have written on this subject. A G. Bramley Moore, um, suggested that the initial Hebrew letter of cherub, cherub in the Hebrew, means like. It's a, it's a, it's sort of like a simile or a a metaphor, it's a comparison, and that its second syllable, which is sort of the, the, the RB sound, uh, signifies one great in power, in wisdom and glory, or whatever can be termed perfection. In fact, from this second syllable, the the herb, if you want to say, we have the, uh, another probably pretty much transliterated word from the Hebrew, um, rabbi. It's the same root that we have as part of cherub is the root to teach rabbi. That's somebody who's full of wisdom, someone who knows a lot. You understand? And so this, uh, this Hebrew word cherub could be signifying... One who is like, uh, who who is um, like, even divine wisdom and glory, and it could even be signifying the character of the person who it is um, like. In other words, and so the angels, um, at least this would suggest that the angels were were intended to be like God in glory. Does that make sense? In character. They were, they, were, they were patterned not in His image like man was, but they were to reflect still His very character, His character of wisdom, His character of goodness, His character of holiness, and so forth. And so this is, this is very interesting to me when I think of that, and especially when we begin thinking of what actually happened with the cherubs, right, with the angels in heaven. And uh, one angel in particular begins to come to mind. As we look at the angels in the sanctuary, we have to start thinking about one angel in particular. And so, once again, take your Bibles, and let's look in Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14, and we're going to begin with verse 12. Isaiah 14 and verse 12. And this is Isaiah the prophet in uh, in a prophetic... And poetic, I guess you might say, passage describing one angel in particular. Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12. And it says, "'How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God.' I will also sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Can you imagine an angel made in the likeness of God, made as a crea- creature, a creation of God, saying, I'm going, to, I'm going to be above God. And all of what Isaiah is using here is sanctuary language. This is an amazing thing, and I, I, I really want to encourage you, if you, if you haven't yet gone through the, the tabernacle, to, to make the time this week to do so. Uh, because when you, when you read the Bible in the light of the sanctuary, you begin to see all kinds of, of, um, of borrowing of sanctuary language in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Of course, the writers were familiar with these things, right? And if we're familiar with them, we'll get more of the, the drift, you might say, of what they were trying to communicate, right? And so here he says, um, I will, I will asc- ascend into heaven. We understand that part. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the Mount of the Congregation in the sides of the north. When you go through the tabernacle, you will, you'll see that there were um, a couple of uh, places where there are crowns on the furniture, And one of those is the table of showbread, and it was on the northern side of the um, sanctuary, of the tabernacle, of the holy place. It would be on the northern side, and that crown, um, many believe, indicates this was representative of the throne of God right there. In the heavenly sanctuary. Obviously, the earthly sanctuary is just a a symbol of what is truly in the heavenly sanctuary. And so, uh, when he says, I will sit on the sides of the north, that's God's place. And um, there are other passages we can use to to see that. Um, David talks about the north as well. Um, When we continue on, he says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Again, sanctuary language, because you had the altar of incense with the cloud of incense going up, right? And above that, of course, in the in the uh, wilderness tabernacle, you have the pillar of cloud by day. So once again, Lucifer is saying, I'm going to be above God, right? This is where God is. I'm going to be up here. This is his ambition. I will be like the Most High. He wanted to be like the Most High in power, but of course, not in character. Now, when when Isaiah calls this angel Lucifer, we are not having a word here that is um, is transliterated. the The word would have been Ben Shahar, or son of the morning, um, son of the dawning. Um, but this is a Latinized translation of its meaning. So Lucifer in Latin would simply mean close to what Ben-Shahar means in Hebrew. Does that make sense? And so, it's not really an, an English word, but a, but a Latin word. Um, it it's also could be translated the herald of dawn or even the morning star. This was a pretty, pretty ostentatious title to place on an angel. Um, it means son of the dawning, herald of dawn, or even morning star. And in some places, this word shahar is also not just called morning, it's also translated light. For example, you're, might, you may be familiar with the text in Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. That's shahar, there's no light in them. And so... This, this word, Ben-Shahar, the son of light, the son of the morning, the son of the dawning, this is what Lucifer means, and it points to his privileged role in the heavenly order of things. It, uh, it could be translated a number of ways here. Of course, Isaiah himself translates it for us when he says, O Lucifer, thou son of the morning, um, Ben-Shahar, son of the morning. And he, he gives us here in, in Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12. But as we continue on, we notice that Lucifer had some issues um, that arose because of his ambition. And um, let's look at Ezekiel now, Ezekiel's account of this in Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28, and we're going to be looking at several passages wherein we can see that the Bible is using symbols or... Um, different names to speak of Lucifer, this same angel who attempted to take the place of God. Ezekiel chapter 28, and we'll notice beginning with verse 11, okay, Ezekiel 28 and verse 11, "...moreover the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyre, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty." Now, once again, that, that, that description right there, the end of verse 12, that is pretty much what cherubim means, okay? That's pretty much a, a, the meaning of, of the word cherubim. And he says, you have been in Eden in the garden of God. Now, if this was literally talking to the king of Tyre, he probably wasn't still alive who had been in Eden in the garden of God, right? Um, since the Bible doesn't teach... Uh, reincarnation. Um, this is a this is a symbolic phrase that is used to describe um, the same angel who is opposed to God. Now, the King of Tyre was the enemy of God's people, and here Lucifer is being described as the King of Tyre. You have been in Eden, the Garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering: sardias, topaz, diamond, barrel, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle and gold and the workmanship of your tablets and of your pipes was prepared in thee in the day which thou was created. Verse 14. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. Now once again we remember back in Exodus chapter 25, right? God's presence was to dwell on the mercy seat of the ark of the covenant and on either side were cherubs covering the ark with their wings. And here Ezekiel describes this being as having been in that position. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast set upon the holy mountain of God. Thou wast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created, till iniquity was found in thee. And um, he goes on in verse 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You have corrupted your wisdom by reason of your brightness." I will cast you to the ground. I will lay you before kings. that They may behold you. And so here you have, here you have once again a description of the same being, Lucifer, a cherubim or a cherub. The I am on the end of Hebrew makes it plural. Um, There's no such thing as cherubims. (laughs) Um, At least that wouldn't be proper Um, English, Hebrew, whatever you want to call it. Um, So the... Lucifer was one of those cherubs that was around or next to the throne of God, and he was, at some point, he was corrupted. Now, this is one of those things which we don't fully understand, can't fully explain how a perfect being can become a sinful being. There are two great mysteries that are spoken of in the Bible, and one is the mystery of iniquity. How sin could arise in a perfect world with a perfect God, with perfect creation. But thankfully that's not the only mystery, because there's also a mystery of godliness. There's the mystery that God would become incarnate and live and die on this earth for us and then choose to dwell in our hearts by faith and create in us a new life. the mystery of godliness, I propose, is an even greater mystery than the mystery of iniquity, but I'm thankful that it's also a more powerful mystery. It's also a more powerful reality that that God has promised to do. And so here it describes Lucifer as having become uh, lifted up with his pride and being cast down as a result. And so let's look now at another passage which describes this Experience of Lucifer in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 12, Revelation chapter 12, and we're going to look at the um, story from the perspective of the prophet John and uh, what happened in heaven with Lucifer. Revelation chapter 12, and we're going to begin with verse 7. Are we there? Revelation 12, and verse 7, there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And that great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him now, we see hap- several things happening here. We see a couple of other titles for this being as well. We see that he's called the dragon. We see that he is called the serpent. We see that he's called the devil, and he's called Satan. Um, a lot of names this fellow has, right? Uh, besides his original name, Son of the Morning, Ben Shahar, um, Lucifer. And so this this devil, he 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 goes about doing a. Uh, uh, I guess you would call it an insurrection against the throne of God, the government of God. You know, in, our new, in the news the last week or so, there's been this fellow, Edward, um, what's his name? The uh, contractor that leaked a whole bunch of information to the British paper um, and uh, has now identified himself as the source of the leak. And Imagine someone with security clearance in the kingdom of heaven right next to the throne of God. You, under- you understand the position that Lucifer was in? Lucifer was in the most privileged position that an angel could be in. And he had, no doubt, the respect of many of the rest of the angels, right? He had the... the uh, he had the... He, ha- he, had, he was basically their leader, he had their respect. And so his influence would be significant. And as iniquity is found in him, and as he began to want the place of God, he began to influence others to follow him. Earlier in the chapter, we, it says that a third of the stars were, 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 um, were drawn with him. Verse 4, His tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And so we understand that... a a significant portion of the angels of heaven, a third according to that verse, left the service of the God of the universe and began following the instructions of Satan, of Lucifer. And he began this rebellion, this revolt against God. Now you can imagine what that must have done to the heart of God. God has created Lucifer as a being of light, wisdom, glory, he epitomized what a cherub was, a cherub. He was that wise, beautiful, intelligent, talented being, and trusted to be the very closest to the throne of God. And a revolt is begun that would not only separate Lucifer from that close inner circle, but would take with him a third of the other angels as well. What a, what a devastating event that must have been in the family of heaven. What an awful, awful, um, ugly mess must have, must have taken place. And we ask the question, why would it be that um, M- Michael and Lucifer would have this war? Why would he be cast out? And for that, I'd like for you to just turn in your Bibles to a few, few little books back from Revelation, Second Peter chapter two. Second Peter chapter two makes it clear why the angels were cast out of heaven, Lucifer and his cohorts. Second Peter chapter two and verse four. Second Peter chapter two and verse four. And we're just gonna read the first part of the verse here. For it says, For if God spared not the angels that what sinned, but cast them down to hell or to the abyss. God spared not the angels that sinned. And so the reason that Satan and his followers were cast out of heaven was very simple, because they sinned. And sin, the Bible defines elsewhere in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, sin is the transgression of the what? law. Now, this is very, very simple for us to understand. God likes to keep things simple, right? He likes to keep them easy for us to understand, and the, the sin is simply the transgression of the law. It's a violation of God's character. It's a violation of God's commandments. It's a violation of the principles of, on which the government of God is built, right? And Lucifer is attacking the very principles upon which the government of God are based, the law of God and um, so sin is, is welling up in Lucifer's heart, he's not just content to be a sinner himself but he's going to have you know, others to go with him, misery loves company have you ever noticed that and um, if he's going to go down he's going to have others go down too and so Lucifer is able to convince many of the angels to sin with him, to rebel against God, to rebel against his government, to rebel against his law and we know that I mean, we ask ourselves the question, what, there was no Ten Commandments at this time, right? There was no Ark of the Testimony built yet with the law of God written on tables of stones and put in it. No, but there was a law, right? Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In fact, uh, in Romans chapter 4 and verse 15, Paul tells us that where there's no law, there's no transgression. If, if there had been no, no law, no basis for the government of God... Lucifer couldn't have violated it, right? It had to have been there even in the very beginning. He, it was there as a foundation of God's government. And this is something very, very many Christians misunderstand because they tend to think of, or we tend to think of law as being restrictive, when in actuality law is freeing. Um, I never understood this completely until I spent some time traveling in third world countries where, there wasn't as much law-abiding, you might say. I guess there were laws there, but they weren't really, they weren't implanted in people's hearts. They were just, you know, externally enforced. And, and um, everything has to be locked. I remember one place I stayed where I went through seven or eight locked gates to get to my room, you know. Um, and you start to realize that, you know, a law-abiding Society is a free society, isn't it? Um, When I grew up, I grew up in a small town, the country in the South, and uh, my parents never took their keys out of their car. Um, Still today, if you go to their house or to their work, the keys will be, if not in the ignition, they'll be right there somewhere around, very visible. Um, And everybody in town did that. Because there was law, right? and people kept the law, and you didn't think about it. It's freeing, there's liberty when there's, a, when there's rules of order, right? And God's government was not a government of chaos. It was not a government of no rule. God's principles have, been, have always been there, they've always been the same, and God created his beings with these understandings, and it wasn't until Lucifer started saying, you know what, this is restrictive, that the other beings started saying, yeah, maybe there's a problem with that, you know, I never thought about that. They just like to do, they just, they, just, they just did what God wanted them to do, and that was wonderful, right? And uh, Lucifer's the one that started saying, you know, Why does God make us do these things? Why is God this way? Why is God that way? We could improve things in heaven. And I don't know all the techniques he used or lies he used, but whatever he said, he was able to deceive an awful lot of people. And this makes me pause for a moment. Because I have to say, you know, if Lucifer was able to deceive a third of the angels in heaven who were cherubim as well, right? They were full of wisdom and intelligence and smart beings that God created in a perfect world who knew God. If Lucifer could deceive them, I think I ought to be a little worried about him deceiving me, don't you think? I think I ought to be saying, Lord, open my eyes and help me to understand Your will. Praise God, he's promised to free us from the deceptions of the devil. Amen? Um, I'm not saying I should live in fear of the devil. No, I'm not saying that at all. All I'm saying is, he's a pretty smart guy. And he's since then, he's had another few thousand years, six thousand years or so, of practice deceiving not only angels, but deceiving mankind. And so, this Lucifer guy is somebody that we should um, respect. And... It's a good reason for us to want Jesus to be a part of our lives, because as the uh, New Testament would tell us, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That's true if we're followers of Jesus. Amen? So, so Lucifer has violated the principles of God's government. He is expelled from heaven, and where does he go? Um, notice with me in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, we're not too far away from there yet, I don't think. Um, Remember, we saw in verse 9, that great dragon was cast out, the old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, his angels were cast out with him. Notice with me verse verse 12. Therefore, uh, rejoice, uh, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them, good news for, for, for heaven, but Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has but a short time, or because he knows that his time is short, the English Standard Version says. And so, this is where the devil has now landed, is planet earth. Now some might ask, that's not fair, is it? Why would God allow the devil to come to planet earth? And um, we won't take time to explore all of that. Um, but one thing that we do know, the devil was not allowed to have his way on planet Earth without the permission or the cooperation of those who had been given dominion over planet Earth. And who was that? That was mankind, wasn't it? Those were our first parents. Um, Lucifer would not be able to wreak havoc on Earth, um, this Earth, that God had created in the beginning and called very good, without our first parents, the caretakers of planet Earth, giving him per- protection or, or permission. And one of the, the the big questions that then comes into our minds, and I've talked to people through the years, many people who have asked this question: Why would God allow? Why would God allow a perfect world to even have the choice of sin? I mean, the mystery of iniquity is bad enough, but why bring it to planet Earth? And it all, again, goes back to the character of God, the government of God, the law of God. And uh, if you could choose one word to describe God, what would that be? Love, right? 1 John 4 and verse 8. God is love. We like that simplicity. Um, but what is Love. There's, there are many, many different elements of love we could describe. Um, it's, it's, a, it's maybe today a, a shallow or overused term. But one thing that we know very certain is that there is no love without freedom. There's no love without freedom. I remember one time I was in the former Soviet Union and I was speaking, and, and um, there were lots of young people coming to the, the it was a theater where we're having the meetings. There had never been a Christian evangelistic series in this city, ever. Um, It had been built during the communist years as a factory town, and um, they were mostly atheists and a few orthodox, and there were a few other various denominations, but nobody had ever done any meetings. And I was speaking, and there were six or 700 young people coming every night. And One of the questions I remember, I'll never forget, that was turned into me was, Why do you come here and force us to believe what you believe? And I thought, force? (laughs) You don't understand. And it's because of their years under communism, you understand, they couldn't comprehend a God of love. Because in their idea, authority meant force. But in God's world, authority means love. Authority means service. And I began to explain to them that, you know, even if you didn't, even if you don't believe what the Bible says about Jesus, even if you choose not to accept Him as your Savior, He's not going to punish you for that. True, you'll still bear the penalty for your sins. The wages of sin is death. But He died on the cross not to force you to do anything, but to give you a choice. Because without His death, you wouldn't have a choice. And if God had removed choice from our first parents, they could not continue to be beings loving him and fellowshipping with him and serving him out of love. They would essentially be programmed to be a certain way. And robots don't love. Computers don't love, do they? Freedom is absolutely essential to love. And so God gives Adam and Eve this choice, and He allows it to be very fair and very simple. We won't go into the whole details here because we have a lot yet to cover, but Genesis chapter 2, we find that story, and we're going to read a few verses in Genesis chapter 3 and just summarize what took place, and then we're going to move on and see how that relates to the sanctuary. Genesis chapter 2, God said, I've made every tree in the garden. There's plenty to eat. There's just one tree you can't eat of, right? And uh, that tree, by the way, was not a poisonous tree. The serpent proved it. Eve proved it. Adam proved it. There was nothing wrong with the fruit. The only reason, the only reason they weren't to eat it was because what? Because God said, And that is when, you know, that is when God really tests our obedience, is when it's not logical, it's just what He said. If we obey when it makes sense to us, have you ever seen kids, maybe little children in the store, or maybe in your home, other homes, whatever, um, kids have this propensity of saying, why? Right? Why? Why? can you pick up whatever it is? Why? And often that why is a delay tactic, right? It's a, it's a little bit of a form of, of uh, well, delay at least, if not disobedience, right? And kids today, and I've seen parents who, who try to reason with their kids and always explain everything, and the kids will not obey until they understand which is probably not the best way to raise your kids, because the best way would be for them to obey and then to understand after they obey, right? That's that's the way, actually, we obey God, too. We obey even when we don't always understand. If we only obeyed when we understood, it would not be a test of obedience. Does that make sense? Anyway, I won't get too sidetracked in that, but Adam and Eve could have eaten of this tree, except that God had said, don't eat of it. And so, you know the story. We'll skip down in verse 8 and uh, verse 6, I'm sorry. When the woman saw that the tree, uh, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate it and gave to her husband, he ate And the eyes of them both were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons, and uh, so forth and so on. You know that was the beginning of the curse of sin on this world because they had disobeyed the command of God, and they had now also sinned, right? And um, as we continue on in the story, we find that God gave them this opportunity to uh, confess, and uh, He also gave them a promise in Genesis 3 and verse 15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is what in theological terms we call the proto-evangelium, the first instance of the gospel in in the Bible, is Genesis 3, verse 15. And again, we see a picture of the character of God. God told Adam and Eve there was hope on the very same day that they lost their hope. In the, in the very same day that they experienced fear and shame and nakedness and cold and guilt, God brought them the hope of the gospel. Um, and we won't, we'll just save time. We're going to skip down here and just go on down to verse 24. So he drove man, uh, drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way, to keep the way of the tree of life. Now, in some ways, we might think that these cherubims, once again, we see cherubims, um, we might think these cherubims were very fearful and very threatening, but they were there for a specific purpose. They were there to keep Adam and Eve out of the garden and to keep them from from eating the tree of life, that sin would not be perpetuated. Now, notice with me this phrase here in verse 24, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 24. So he drove out the man. That word, "drove out the man." Once again, in, in the English, that sounds as though God is mad and he's vindictive and he's driving. Right? That's the that's the that's the uh, the, the the verb that we would sort of think as being pretty harsh. But the word in Hebrew is garash, and it's also used in in Genesis 4 and verse 14, talking about Cain, when Cain was driven out from the face of the earth, from from his people. But it's also used in Genesis 21 um, to talk of the divorce between Hagar and Abraham, if you want to call that a divorce. Remember, uh, Sarah hadn't had any children, and so she suggested that Abraham could fulfill the promises of God by having a son through her servant, Hagar. And um, when that didn't work out very well, well, it did work out, but when Sarah had a son, the son of promise, and there came to be rivalry between Hagar and Sarah and Ishmael and Isaac, um, Hagar and Ishmael had to leave, right? And that, that divorce or that driving out was the um, result of that that attempt by Abraham to fulfill the promises of God. So, to be cast out or to be divorced is another another interpretation or understanding of this word, garash. And so, uh, it's very interesting when we look at this, we see that the Old Testament uses it in other ways as well. It says in Malachi 2 and verse 16, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And some people might think, well, that's talking about, talking about infidelity and, uh, you know, uh, the, the divorce among modern society today, and that wouldn't be a wrong thing, I don't think. I think God establishes families, and He wants them to stay together. But this is something much more intimate Malachi is communicating. Malachi is communicating something that God has gone through Himself, In essence, what took place when man sinned and man had to be driven out from the Garden of Eden, in essence, a divorce took place between God and man. God made man in the beginning, in his own image, after his own likeness, for his own pleasure, Revelation chapter 4 tells us. He enjoyed communion and communication. There was relationship Right, God made us in His image with the capacity for relationship and God wanted that close relationship with mankind and when man sinned, a divorce took place and that's a very painful separation. And God has been through it Himself. God is not saying, I hate it because I'm vindictive. And He's saying, it's painful to me too. And the whole plan of redemption is about reuniting God with his people. In fact, this, is called, this process is sometimes referred to in the New Testament as marriage. The church is called the bride, right? And Jesus is the husbandman. And the ultimate, the ultimate outcome of the gospel is the reunification of what was divorced at the fall of man at the Garden of Eden. Does this make sense? And the sanctuary helps us to understand this whole process. So from the fall of man all the way down to the final restoration of all things, we're going to see this as God's plan and God's intentions. Now, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, we read that passage about the promise of the Messiah. But I want us to notice what else took place in Genesis chapter 3. And, um, verse 21, unto Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. the question comes, where did God get skins from to make clothing? Of course, they had tried to make them from fig leaves, right? Any of you ever worn any of those designer fig leaves, fig leaf clothes, um, I can only imagine they were not very comfortable. They probably added to the guilt and shame that they had trying to sit in fig leaf garments behind trees hiding from God in the Garden of Eden. Um, God creates for them garments of skins to replace their fig leaves. What had to happen in order for him to get skins? Something had to die, right? The very first sacrifice, as it appears... Took place, perhaps even that very same day that sin entered humanity. And you can just imagine, I can just imagine the horror of Adam and Eve having to take the life or see the lives taken of innocent animals who didn't do anything. But in order for them to have clothes to wear that's what had to happen right and the whole thing was taught them as a type or a symbol of an innocent sacrifice that was to come in the future and adam and eve were instructed there we don't have it all here in genesis chapter 3 there was a lot said between god and adam and eve evidently that wasn't recorded here how do I know that? Because in Genesis chapter 4, we're going to look at it in just a second, Cain and Abel came to offer, and they obviously knew what they were supposed to do, what they weren't supposed to do, and it wasn't, it's not written out for us here in Genesis 3. You understand what I'm saying? So they were told a lot that we don't have here in Genesis 3. God explained to them the death of this lamb symbolizes the death of someone who had come not be, and die not because of his own mistakes, but because of your mistakes. And what a sobering and sorrowful thought that must have been. But it's just like us today. Before we move on from the, from the skins, the garments, we try to make our own garments, our own righteousnesses by our own human works, right? And they basically amount to fig leaves. Well, Isaiah says they amount to dirty rags. God says, I'll give you my garments. And again, this is language that spans from the book of Genesis here in chapter 3 and 4, all the way down to the book of Revelation. I'll give you my garments, which is my righteousness. In order for that to happen, I'm going to have to die the innocent sacrifice. And his, his garments are adequate. Amen? Ours aren't. His are. So we continue on here. And we see that in the very beginning, the first sacrifices apparently would have been made right there in Genesis chapter 3, perhaps the very first same day that sin entered the planet. And they likely took place right at the gate of the garden. Now, I want you to see this. Genesis chapter 4 now, and we're going to see verse, verse, beginning with verse 1. And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and, and, and she said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Now this, I'm reading from the King James Version here. If if you were to literally translate the Hebrew here, when she says, I have gotten a man from the Lord, it would be more like, I have gotten a man, comma, the Lord. Eve actually hoped that the Messiah that was to come, the promise in Genesis 3.15, she hoped that her firstborn was going to be, that this sin thing could be taken care of and get over with. Imagine her disappointment when that firstborn was not the promised seed, but was instead the first murderer and killed his own brother. And that's the story we look at here. It says, "'She again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time it came to pass, Cain brought forth, uh, brought of the fruit of the ground an offering to the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and unto his offering.'" There's so many lessons we can learn from this story. First of all, evidently, God had instructed them to bring lambs. Now, it wasn't hard for Abel because he was a shepherd. He, ha- he brought his best lamb, that's what it says. And God respected the offering of Abel and, and accepted that offering. But it says unto Cain and to his offering he did not have respect. Cain said, I'm not a shepherd. And even though God said to bring a lamb, I think it's just good enough to bring what's important to me, right? Um, And so he brought his best fruit. And you might say, well, he had good intentions. You know, good intentions aren't enough sometimes. God expects us to obey, right? That's what it says. I mean, God didn't respect his offering. And the Lord said to him, and I want us to go into this dialogue a little bit between God and Cain in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 6. The Lord said unto Cain, why are you angry? Why are you wroth? And why is your countenance fallen? If you did well, shall you not be accepted? And if you did not well, sin lies at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And this is, this is an amazing passage. Again, um, the, it's, it's sort of like the sanctuary. The more we study, the more we see. And in Genesis chapter uh, 4 and verse 7, I used to read this and scratch my head and not understand what it meant at all when it says here, if you do well, shall you not be accepted? That makes sense, right? Look, why are you upset? If you're doing the right thing, you'd be accepted. So obviously, it must be your fault, right? You're not doing the right thing. And if you're not doing the right thing, he says, sin lies at the door. And I always read that and said, well, that must mean that he was about to sin. But I learned that the word sin here, the word translated sin, is found many, many times in the Old Testament. In fact, it's translated 112 times in the Old Testament, not sin, but sin offering. Sin offering. And it seems what God is saying here, read, read it with that understanding. Suppose, and this is maybe a little bit of an assumption, but it seems from what this verse is saying to be what was taking place. Suppose they were going to the gate of the Garden of Eden to offer their sacrifices, guarded by two cherubs, right? God says to Cain, your your sacrifice is not acceptable. If it had been, if you were doing the right thing, you would have been accepted. But if not... There's a sin offering here you can use. Sin lies at the door, the gate, right there at the at the entrance to the garden. God was offering a lamb that Cain could have a sacrifice to give. And no, notice the last phrase, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt, root, in other words, do with him what you want. That last phrase makes no sense unless you understand that God is offering him a lamb. He's offering a sin offering. There's no other way that I know that you can understand that last phrase unless it was God saying, you know what? Your offering isn't good enough, but I will provide an offering. And isn't that Jesus? That's grace, my friends. That's grace. God saying, you can't do it, but I have an offering that's acceptable. I'll give it to you. The same as we find... Taking place with Abraham and Isaac on the Mount Moriah, right? God provides an offering. God offers, a a Cain a lamb, but instead of accepting this, the Bible says that Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother, and slew him. And so Cain became the first murderer, instead of the redeemer of the world as his mother had hoped. And so we find here the, the, uh, the story of Abel's death, Abel the righteous. In fact, if we, if we look in the New Testament, we, we find that, that um, turn with me there, we're wrapping up here, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4. I, I love this because Abel didn't have any idea what he was doing as the first martyr. He had no idea we would be talking about him thousands of years later. Hebrews chapter eleven and verse four it says this: By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead, yet speaketh. By faith, the Bible says God offered uh, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice. I like that because in sometimes we read the Old Testament and we think these sacrifices were done to To have merit in themselves, as if by killing the lamb, Abel's sins would be forgiven. But no, that's not what the New Testament tells us. Abel's sacrifice was accepted, not because it was the lamb, but because he offered it by faith, right? By faith in what? Abel was looking forward to the coming of a Redeemer. Abel was looking forward to a lamb that would come, as was promised to his parents in there at the Garden of Eden. And the Bible says that God testifying of his gifts, and and by it he being dead yet speaketh. I like that because Abel's testimony still speaks to us today, right? It speaks to us today because it tells us to look by faith to the lamb. Look by faith. To Jesus. John chapter 1 and verse 29 Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was that one who was prefigured by the lambs that were slain by Adam and Eve at the garden, but were slain by Abel at the garden, at the gate of the garden, I should say. Uh, Jesus was the one being pointed forward to, and as we look in the sanctuary service, all of the sacrifices offered for the forgiveness of sins we representing Jesus. they were representing the one that was to take away the sin of the world. Revelation thirteen eight refers to him as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And what that simply means is that he had, he had made that commitment to come and to be the sacrifice for man's sin, and he would come as our Savior. Those who sacrificed those lambs were meant to do it by faith. Now, of course, we know what happened in Israel of old. They forgot the lamb that was to come and started trusting in the lambs they were killing. And those lambs couldn't save anyone. Only Jesus, only Jesus can save us from our sins. Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And so the sanctuary services, like the sacrifices instituted in Eden, pointed forward to the great plan of salvation by which God purposes to restore mankind into oneness with himself. They point forward to Jesus, to his sacrifice, to his ministry, and to his reunion with his people. The sanctuary is all about undoing the damage done with the fall of Lucifer and the fall of Adam and Eve. The sanctuary illustrates how God will deal with the sin that has caused this chasm between mankind and himself and will bring about a final marriage once again at the end of all things when God restores everything unto Himself. I'd like for you to turn with me to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and let's just look at a couple of sanctuary language instances we find in the last part of the book of Revelation. The last couple chapters, Revelation chapter 21, Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1. Revelation 21, verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Verse 4, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. Does that sound like a good place to be? Does that sound like somewhere you want to be? I do. But notice with me, he says in verse 9, There came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show you the bride... The Lamb's wife. You see that? What is it called, Jesus? The Lamb. Still in the book of Revelation. From the book of Genesis all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, we have sanctuary language being used. And once again, we have the Lamb being talked about. And He sees the city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of God from heaven. And He says inside the city, verse 22, Revelation 21 and verse 22, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. Do you think there's still going to be a need for a plan of salvation in heaven? Not at all. No. He says the, the Lamb are the temple of it. Notice verse 23. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did enlighten it. And the Lamb is the light thereof. Once again, we see the Lamb in, in, the, in the New Jerusalem. Verse 27. There shall be in no wise "...shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life." Over and over, Jesus referred to in the book of Revelation, even after the final resolution, the final remarriage and reunion of His people as the Lamb. Chapter 23 and verse 3, "...and there shall be no more curse." But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him, and they shall see His face, and His name shall be in their foreheads, and there shall be no night there, and they shall need no candle, neither the light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And He said unto me, These things are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent His angels to show unto His servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly." Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Oh, I'm so thankful for that lamb, aren't you? From the book of Genesis down to the book of Revelation, we see the sanctuary theme and sanctuary language being used. And this week we're going to be exploring in greater detail some of these services to help us understand and interpret what the Bible is talking about. But the most important thing that we can gain from our study, is to have our minds and our eyes pointed towards Jesus, to His sacrifice, His salvation, His righteousness. Tonight, I just want to tell Him I'm thankful that He was willing, He was willing to die for my sins, the lamb to the slaughter, the innocent for the guilty, that He took my death that I might have his life. You want to tell him that also? You want to tell him you're thankful? Let's just pray. Father in heaven, tonight we're just grateful for your goodness. We're thankful that we can study together from the sanctuary, from Genesis to Revelation, we can see these themes. And as this week we're discovering and exploring in greater detail, I just want to pray that your spirit would guide us and teach us that we might learn and grow to love Jesus more to appreciate more what he's done for us and what he's even now doing for us and what he will do for us as we explore the themes of the sanctuary. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org